0: All right, kids, thank you so much for singing and worshiping with us together. At this time, you are dismissed to your kids' life classrooms. Your teachers are right in the back. There's a big sign if you want to head that way. As the kids head out, I want to remind you of a couple things that are on our our family calendar this Christmas. Uh, One of the things that I want to remind you to keep doing, we've already gotten a lot, but I want to keep having you step in. This is bringing gifts for our Christmas store. If this is new to you, Our Christmas store is a ministry that offers uh, under-resourced parents in our community a a dignified shopping experience where they have the opportunity to stretch their money and purchase affordable gifts for their children. Uh, Our gift collection here at TVC, just as a reminder, ends Wednesday, December 8th. So I want you to keep bringing your new unwrapped gifts. Otherwise, I'm going to have to unwrap them myself, which is kind of fun. But unwrapped gifts in by then Wednesday, December 8th. Place them in the box at the bottom of the stairs. You guys have noticed that with a bunch of gifts that are in there. And if you want to buy online, you can buy online at travelitchurch.org/giftdrive. You can shop the wish list there, or you can also sign up to serve on that, that website as well: travelitchurch.org/giftdrive. Now, alongside the Christmas store, we also have an opportunity to continue to love and serve uh, another community uh, within uh, that we've been serving for for years now: the Bellator Nursing Home. So this Christmas, one of the things we're doing is putting together Christmas packages for them. And we're actually gathering on that same date, December 8th, here at Iwana at 6 p.m. to put together the gifts, to write Christmas cards for them, uh, to communicate the love of Christ through uh, these kind of Christmas packages. And so if you want more information, you can actually email info at trivillagechurch.org or you can just come on Wednesday, December 8th, 6 p.m. We'll hook you up. Um, And if you know Christy Kale, you can also reach out to her. So a couple different ways if you want to get involved last but not least with all these different opportunities to serve this christmas we are also excited about the opportunity to gather together to worship together and celebrate the birth of our savior together as a church on christmas eve our christmas eve service this year is going to be at 4 p.m on december 24th if you didn't know that's the date for christmas eve and we're going to be worshiping here sorry that one didn't land it's fine um 4 p.m. This year, we're kind of shifting because of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings where we're actually having the, the kids worship with us. Uh, we're doing a, a family service, and don't worry, parents, uh, we're going to adjust accordingly. It's not going to be a 45-minute sermon, as you know I'm used to doing. Um, we're going to make it a, a whole family service that we might worship together and anticipate Christmas together. Next week, we should have invite cards if you want to invite friends, family, co coworkers uh, that you can use to kind of uh, prime the pump for the conversation, okay? Now, with Christmas Eve in mind and Advent beginning to uh, uh, stabilize us with hope in Christ this morning, I want to read the text that we're going to be resting in for this Advent season as a familia. Now, the next four Sundays of Advent, it's it's four weeks, uh, on into Christmas Eve, we're going to be sitting in one particular text, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and we're going to be meditating together on the titles of the, the Promised One of Isaiah's Prophecy. We're going to take each one of these titles and see through Isaiah 9 into the Christmas story as Jesus is the one who lives into each of these names as the one true God come to earth to save humanity, to to, to restore creation, to make everything right again like I was praying about. So this morning we dive into this text and we're going to be focusing on the first name of Jesus or more specifically the first half of the first name of Jesus, wonderful, wonderful. Now, if you're wondering, Eric, how is this going to work? A sermon on one word? That's not how we usually do things. Well, buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And if you're able to please stand as I read the hope of Christmas for our family and for the world this morning. By his Spirit and in his word, God speaks these words to us this morning For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. i have you sit down and we'll pray that the Spirit of God would revise us this morning with this word. Emmanuel, we pray that you would use the words of life about you, Jesus, the word of life, to bring us back to life this morning. Father, would you communicate your love by your Spirit in the person and work of your Son? Would you remind us in our tired and anxious hearts, in the successes and failures of life, in the joys and disappointments of the holidays, in the pain of this year, in the blessings of this year, in everything we have to be grateful for and in all that we struggle to comprehend, would you remind us of your unfailing love and the rock-solid hope we have in you? Would you strengthen our weak faith as we gather around your word, hungry to be filled, thirsty to be satisfied, desperate for the hope of your gospel among your people? May my words and our meditations in this moment be a a sacred moment of worship together as we gather with the family you've created in Christ before your word. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a week or so ago, my family and I were taking a drive. Uh, Specifically, Jocelyn was driving because she loves it, and I was reading because I don't love driving. And everything was calm in the back of the van. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. When way in the back there arose such a clatter, I jumped from my seat to see what was the matter as a perfect duet of ear-splitting screams erupted from the back seat. Christmas! My girls, nearly falling out of their car seats, were looking from, from window to window, screaming at every single light display we were passing. Every time we saw a new one, the scream duet would launch into a new verse. Jocelyn, the uh, strong mother that she is, continued driving undisturbed. Oh, yeah, she looked at me and explained. I forgot to tell you, they do that now. (laughs) Whenever the screams would subside, the girls would start to repeat this this phrase that has now become my theme for the Advent season. Daddy, we're looking for Christmas. You want to look for Christmas, Daddy? Looking for Christmas. After a year filled with all kinds of ups and downs, With a lot to be grateful for and celebrate and and more than enough to regret and lament, this Advent season I find myself looking for Christmas more than ever. Looking for the hope of Advent. Longing for the reminder of a God who keeps his promises. Searching for joy and faith and peace. The season of Advent, not just Christmas, but the the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas is a a special season in the church calendar where we are reminded that faith and hope and joy and peace and all of what we're looking for is not just found in the same place, but in one person, Jesus Christ. This Advent, how do you find yourself looking for Christmas? Trying to hold on to hope, struggling to generate joy, Or or maintain your peace with the thought of another holiday alone. Or, Or a new experience of a holiday with an empty chair at the dinner table. Or you're just so tired at the end of the year. Maybe this morning you're here and you need more than just a reminder of your faith. Maybe you need a revival of your faith. For whatever reason, your faith has flatlined this past year. Or maybe you're here and you've actually been in a sweet season with the Lord. And you're stepping into Advent with the hope and joy of Christmas, looking for, for who you might be able to share it with. However you've begun this Advent season, this morning and in and, and this month, in this rhythm of worship in our calendar, I want to invite all of us to look for Christmas together and find the joy of Christ among God's people. To communicate the joy of Christ through God's people. Now, I do have to confess something to you this morning. Thinking about all that, th- this year I've committed what, I, uh, what I've called holiday heresy. I-, I started looking for Christmas earlier than I should have, and in my weakness, I started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Now you have to understand, a couple of years ago, I would have been strong enough to resist the temptation, and I would have called people to repentance for committing holiday heresy, but I... Got to confess this morning that this year I dove in head first and I fired up my Christmas playlist weeks before Thanksgiving. And if I'm honest, I don't regret it even a little bit. You can email me about it later. If you want to email me, that's fine. But I mentioned that to say that when I queued up my Christmas playlist, one of the songs that gets me every time is actually the old hymn we sang to open our service this morning. A hymn that was written by Isaac Watts over 300 years ago. Joy to the world. It's a song that wasn't even written as a Christmas song, really but that paints a picture of the rejoicing that that Jesus' first coming generated and points to the rejoicing that his second coming promises. And it opens up with those words of celebration, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy, rejoicing, the kind of human experience that fills your head and your heart, that, 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 that courses through your smile to every fiber of your being and electrifies your soul with something that's deeper than happiness has more staying power than holiday cheer. Joy to the world for everybody. No matter where you find yourself or how you find yourself, if you're maybe more in need of being found than you were at this time last year, joy. Why? Because the Lord of life, the lover of our souls, the rescuer has come. And by the end of the song, that word joy has actually found its way through every verse and near the end is is actually paired with the word that we don't use all that often, a word that paints Advent with awe. And I'm going to read you the verse I'm talking about. I'm not going to sing it for everybody's sake. I'm just going to read it. But I want you to hear these words again. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the light of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love, and wonders, wonders of his love. Wonders. The kind of acts that take our breath away and fill us with life-giving oxygen all at the same time. The, 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 the kind of experiences that we find difficult to describe, and at the same time are filled to the brim with adjectives trying to desperately get at what we are experiencing. Have you ever come face to face with wonder in your life? I mean, the kind of wonder that dances in the eyes of all the little ones that joined us in worship this morning when they're trying to trip over their words to try to explain something amazing that absolutely happened to them. Wonder. You see, these little ones, they actually live in a world where anything is possible. Sadly, for too many of us um, sophisticated adults, we've lost that sense of wonder as life weighs us down with with worries and what-ifs rather than lifting our hearts to the wonder-working king. Advent, Christmas, the, the, the celebration of God become human is a reminder that no matter how far gone we are, we are not beyond saving. Because we live in a world that no matter how bad we think things are, Jesus responds to our despair saying, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, in the world that God has created and is in the process of recreating, anything is possible because it is filled with the wonders of a wonder-working king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, we sing. Joy because the one who refills the world with the promise of salvation has finally arrived. Now, I committed holiday heresy this year and shamelessly, I might add, played Christmas music in my office very loudly, that pointed me to Jesus because it is far too easy for me to lose sight of all that I have in Christ when I am so focused on what I wish I had, yeah. mm-hmm. who I wish I still had. Why some seasons feel more empty than full, more, more, more bitter than pleasant, more mara than Naomi. We just closed the book of Ruth last week in a, a, a genealogy of hope a legacy of joy and suffering, a a a timeline of promises obscured and promises revealed, a a family tree that looked like it was fading into the darkness, but whose flame was reignited by the light of the world. And the hope of Ruth 4 leads us into the promise of Isaiah 9, where much like the names in the story of Ruth, there is meaning and anticipation embedded in the name of the one who is to come or as we will see over the next few weeks in the, the list of titles that name him because he cannot be contained to one name. For the season of Advent, we're going to be taking those names in Isaiah 9, 6 and meditating on each of them as we celebrate the anniversary of Jesus' first coming, as we lean into the hope and promise of his second coming. And like I said this morning, we focus on that one word that is repeated in joy to the world, wonder. The word, the word that begins this list of Jesus' names in Isaiah 9, Wonderful. And the reason I want us to slow down in this passage and over the next two weeks consider both halves of this first name is because I think we as a community need to be desperately reminded of both the wonder-filled Jesus that we worship as well as the wise counselor that we trust. And so I want to take time to do both of those things over the next two weeks. So this morning, I want us to zero in on the wonder-filled Jesus we worship, the wonder of the Jesus who has begun and will one day finish making everything sad untrue. Fixing what sin broke. Turning a world that's upside down in sin and evil right side up in peace and goodness. We need wonder to be re-injected in our lives this Christmas because we can get so caught up in this is never going to change. This is never going to get better. God's forgotten about me. We could so easily stall out in suffering. Believing that this is just how it's going to be forever. Because we've stopped believing that God does wonders. That God can truly do anything. That God is still at work in our world today and that his work didn't stop thousands of years ago. That he is still working the wonders of salvation and life and his kingdom here and now. Saving people, changing lives, repairing what is broken, restoring what was taken. That's why I wanted to do something a little out of the norm for us and focus on one word this morning. Because we all need more wonder in our lives, believing that God is not only able but willing This theme of wonder courses through the story of the gospel, a a story that begins with the surprising incarnation of God at Christmas. And so this morning, looking for Christmas, I want to invite us all into the wonder of Advent, the promise of the wonder-working king who has come. This first Sunday in Advent, I I can summarize this sermon in a phrase and a sentence. Here's my phrase. I didn't put it up on the screen. I felt it might be a little sacrilegious, but I'm going to say it anyways. Remember, rejoice, rinse and repeat. Remember, rejoice, rinse, and repeat. Or to make it into a sentence that's a little bit more churchy, something we can meditate and pray through this week. Those who rejoice, when I say that I mean those who, who truly rejoice, who, who are filled with joy, who, who are not just happy circumstantially, but joyful in whatever circumstance, are those who remember his wonders. Those who remember not just doctrine or theology, but who remember the wonders that those theological truths are built upon. In order to be a rejoicing people, we need to be a remembering people. Not just of historical and theological data, but of the wonders of the Lord, of what the Lord has done to save and make a people for himself. Those who rejoice are those who remember his wonders. And so this morning, I want to track the story of the gospel all over the scriptures and illuminate four wonders for us. They are the wonder of his arrival, the wonder of his life, the wonder of his love, And the wonder of his reign. The wonder that is Jesus' first coming from his arrival all the way to his life that expresses the the supernatural kingdom of the wonder-working king. As well as the love of that wonder-working king as he saves his people. And then as he reigns as a king unlike any other over his people and really the whole world. And to track these wonders in scriptures, I'm going to actually plant one foot in the book of Isaiah and then another foot in the gospel of John even while I mention other places in Scripture, in order to help us see this wonder-working king working wonders on behalf of his people. That's our plan. Those who rejoice are those who remember his wonders, and the four wonders we're going to focus on are the wonder of his arrival, life, love, and reign. Four wonders centered on Jesus and embedded in that one word in Isaiah 9-6, wonderful. A word that is preceded by promise. Look at the text. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Our first wonder this morning is the wonder of his arrival. The the promise that God makes in Isaiah 9 of a child born, a, a son given. There is one who is coming, Isaiah says, whose arrival brings light and life and joy and hope. All right, fast forward to the Gospel of John. In the very first chapter of that book, we read these words, verse 14 and 18. The word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. The child born, the son given, is not just a promised descendant in the genealogy or in a, an additional branch to the family tree, The promise of a child born and a son given is none other than God the son becoming human and living among us. Showing us God. Making God known. And I mean truly known. Like like relationship with him kind of known. When Isaiah prophesies about a savior, it is a promise bigger than even Isaiah could have understood. A promise that traced its fulfillment past the dynasty of Israel's king all the way to the little town of Bethlehem were hundreds of years, thousands of years before probably a couple named Ruth and Boaz had a child named Obed and had multiple children that leads in this same town of Bethlehem all the way through to King David but way past King David into the world's true king who took on a body flesh and bones tendons and muscles and arteries and veins actual humanity the wonder of the incarnation, of, of God coming to us, is not only that he showed up, but that he became human. God could have shown up in all kinds of ways. Right? The, the, the story of the Bible is filled with all kinds of stories where God shows up in fire or in a cloud or, or just a voice or even through angels. But this time God didn't just show up. He became human. All the way human. Sometimes we act like Jesus was not all the way human, like he had some kind of a cheat code on his life, right? Like like his miraculous birth and the the, the mystery of his incarnation that he is 100% God and 100% human made him into some kind of Superman uh, who we know loves us but couldn't possibly relate to us. And we marvel at the wonder of the incarnation in theory but dismiss it in practice, I'll give you just one example of how I think this plays out. Uh, I think there's a lot of different examples, uh, but here's why I'm pointing out this problem because of how I think it affects the way we live our lives. You see, I'm not just trying to make sure that we're precise on doctrine, although that's incredibly important. The reason it's important is because the what we believe affects how we live. There are more examples, but uh, I'll give you time for one. uh, I'll confess this as well. Uh, Some of us here, including myself, hence the confession, really struggle with our emotions. (laughs) Wasn't asking for a response, John, but I'll take it. Now, I just don't mean that we struggle with emotions because we don't know what to name in our emotions. I mean that if we dig down deep, we'll realize that there's actually this belief underneath that we have uh, kind of uh, 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 received from either the world or even church or whatever, that, that emotions are somehow sinful, that emotions are a part of the fall that our experiences of fear and sadness and anger is all the way unrighteous all the time. Here's the problem with that belief. It's not biblical. It it does damage to the design of God in each and every one of us. And here's why I know that, because of the theology of the incarnation. Because of the wonder of his, his arrival, the reality that he took on flesh is radical, precisely because by it, we not only get a savior coming to earth, we also get to see what it means to be truly human. In the words of one of the church fathers speaking about God revealing himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he writes this The glory of God is a human being fully alive, and human life consists in beholding God. Jesus was not just some uh, floating spirit who never touched the ground, or some superman that only pretended to be human. He ate, he drank, He experienced hunger and loss and pain. He suffered and cried and experienced every emotion we experience, including anger. And he did it all without sin. Perfectly. The the author of Hebrews explains it like this in chapter 2. It says, "...for this reason, he, being Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that he, being Jesus, might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me bring this example full circle. When Jesus came to the earth and lived a perfect life where he was perfect in all aspects, that included his emotional life. Even though it is entirely possible to sin emotionally, it does not follow that emotions in and of themselves are sinned because Jesus himself experienced them as the perfect God-man. Now, I've quoted this book before gentle and lowly by a pastor down in Naperville, Dane Ortland. but he helped me understand this when he explains that Jesus' perfect emotional life, in his perfection, Jesus never overreacted and he never underreacted. He always reacted appropriately to everything that was before him, perfectly to each and every situation. He experienced and expressed emotions as we were designed to experience and express them, perfectly aligned to the way God made and sees the world. Do you see what I mean? I'm not sure who needs to hear this today, but here's why I'm pressing the wonder of Christ's arrival so strongly, the, the, the wonder of the incarnation, because it's not just Christianity 101, some basic belief that you just kind of like, all right, I checked that box and I'm good. It is a theological reality with radical implications for the whole story of the gospel, for what we believe about God and what we believe about how he made us. Another one of the church fathers who wrote on the Incarnation explains it like this, what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Translation, if Jesus is anything less than 100% human and 100% God, there is something about our humanity that has been left vulnerable to sin. But that is not what we believe. We believe that the wonder of his arrival is wonderful not just because it happened, but because of how it happened. He truly became fully human. He did not just come to save our souls. He came to save everything about us. A child born, a son given, to save image bearers from the sin that has distorted and destroyed so much. This is why Isaiah says he will be called wonderful. Because from the very beginning, he would be full of wonders. A wonder working king. Excuse me. A wonder working king. Working the wonder of salvation into the story. For the sake of his image bearers. Now, I'm pressing this when we go back to Isaiah 9 because this is who God has always been. As Isaiah calls Jesus wonderful or or the promised one wonderful, he's talking about this person in a completely different way than any of the people that have saved Israel in the past. This is not just some really good leader that's coming, a really good king that's coming. God is coming and here's how I know that because over and over again including in the book of Isaiah God's people are called to rejoice by calling them to remember God's wonders in their history and more specifically at a precise moment in their history the exodus when God freed his people from slavery there's actually three times in the book of exodus where the same word that's used here for wonderful is used there to describe the God who works wonders In our chapter at the very beginning, Isaiah 9-1, we read, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The way of the sea is the way of the Exodus. And Isaiah prophesies that God will do it again. That the wonder-working king is working wonders on behalf of his people to save them not just from slavery, but now from slavery to sin. The promised one is wonderful, which is our first indicator that he is not just any savior. He's not just like the judges of old, the prophets of the past, the kings of kingdoms lost. He is the one true God, the God who works wonders in the flesh, come to save his people. Isaiah points forward to the wonder of his arrival. This Advent, we look backwards to the wonder of his arrival. And in looking back, our remembrance is the beginning of our rejoicing. So, I want to invite you into the remembering rhythm of Advent, not just so that you might keep your theological ducks in a row, but to invite you into the joy of God's people as we re engage the wonder of his arrival. A wonder that is truly wonderful, not just a doctrine to hold, but a wonder to behold. Those who, who rejoice are those who remember his wonders. But this morning, I promised you more than one wonder. We're not just remembering the wonder of his arrival. We also look back and remember him as the wonder-working king who actually worked wonders in his life. And so as we look at the wonder of his life, I want us to run through a few examples of these, these supernatural acts in the life of Jesus and show you how the wonder-working king was at work and why this Advent, your joy will be increased by remembering who he is and the wonder of his life. I've kind of showed my cards a little bit, but, but wonder is this word that, that is it, trying to uh, describe and represent what we would consider out of the ordinary, right? It's used to describe situations where someone did more than they were able to do on their own. In the context of Scripture, it is often used to summarize the supernatural, communicating not just what happened, but the reaction we should have in the face of what happened. Wonder, awe, right? Like, like, like the breathtaking experience of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. These, these wonders, they, it, they elicit a response. They, they, they generate awe in us, and they, they leave us speechless, amazed, overwhelmed by the experience. In other words, wonder is a word that sums up the phrase, God is the only explanation. And over and over again, this is seen in high definition in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Right? We talked about the wonder of his arrival in John 1, but now I want to give you these three brief, brief glimpses of the wonder of his life in John 6 and 11 to explain this second point. And what I want you to see here is not just the wonders of God, but the way the wonders of God reveal God in the life of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Our first example of wonders is the feeding of thousands in John 6, 1 through 15. I'm not going to I didn't want to make the guy that makes the slides have to work till midnight trying to put it all on different slides. So you'll have to open up your Bible to see that. But I'll, I'll run through the story really quickly here. Uh, in this story, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee after some, some heavy and difficult teaching. But, but it seems like the crowds are, are hungry for more. And so they, they follow him. And as they're approaching this, this huge crowd, Jesus turns to one of his disciples, Philip, and sets him up like any good teacher. He asks them, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Philip doesn't answer. He fumbles over his words, but eventually he explains to Jesus the the impossibility of their situation. But like I've already said, with man this is impossible. but Not with God. With God all things are possible. And this wonder-working king shows how when he takes five loaves and two fish and feeds thousands of people. I mean the food never reaches the bottom. And he feeds the masses not just to provide for them once on a hillside, but to communicate that he is the wonder-working king of provision who will provide for his people both physical and spiritual food forever, especially when both feel like impossibilities. Second example. This next uh, couple verses in that same chapter, John 6, 16, uh, our second example of this wonder-working king where he actually freaks his disciples out. After the scene of the multiplying food, the disciples go ahead of Jesus and cross the lake in a boat. Jesus hangs back, but it almost feels like he kind of has bad timing because a storm comes down on the lake and and the waves are starting to swell over the boat. They start to fill the darkness with danger. And all of a sudden, the disciples catch this glimpse of of something ominous on the waves, a a, a figure walking on, on the water like he was just out for some kind of midnight stroll. Their fear overtakes them as the next wave crashes on top of them and and these words come out of the wind. It is, I don't be afraid. The wonder-working king of provision now shows himself to be the wonder-working king of creation as he enters the danger of a storm as well as the overwhelming, overwhelming feel of fear among his disciples. And he enters it with the kind of peace that only the one true God could bring. Fast forward to our final wonder-filled story in John 11 where the the wonder-working king is confronted with the kind of news no one wants to receive. One of your friends, Lazarus, is sick. Confident in the glory that God will receive in this scene, Jesus actually delays his return for for two days. When he he finally decides to go back, the disciples are, are once again filled with fear But it's not because of the sickness of Lazarus, it's because of the the sin sickness of the enemies of Jesus who tried to kill him last time he was in town. He answers their fears with the confidence of God's glory and explains that that Lazarus has died, but there's work to be done. And so they follow him back, ready to die with him, not realizing that Jesus is on his way to reverse death. The wonder-working king arrives, and both of Lazarus' sisters approach him, weeping, grieving their dead brother, And he assures them of resurrection. And so they assure him that they understand what he means about the resurrection at the end of time. Jesus wants to make sure he's being clear. He locks eyes with them and clarifies his promise of resurrection by revealing God to them. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks them. The wonder he's about to perform is now introduced by the character of God that it reveals. The wonder-working king of resurrection has come, and he embodies life itself. At the tomb, Jesus weeps in the face of death, even as he works the wonder of resurrection that anticipates the ultimately human-saving act, work of resurrection in the gospel. Three examples of wonder in the life of Jesus. In the life of the one called Wonderful— Not just because of the wonders of his arrival, but because he is the wonder-working king. Working wonders in the life of his people. Communicating who he is as a king and who they are as his people. A king who provides and is sovereign over creation and sovereign over death. A king who has life in himself. A kingdom where everyone is provided for and where creation is not chaos, but under God's control. A kingdom where death does not get the last word. The wonder-working king gets the last word. The wonder of his arrival opened up the way of wonder in his life. And all of these different wonders, those three examples, and there are more in all of the gospels, they, they, they foreshadow and, and anticipate and communicate the character and salvation of God. They, they, they set up the spread of the kingdom and say, hey, this is what my kingdom looks like. It communicates not just wonder, but a wonder-working king who is making everything right again. Hope, love, peace, joy. They've all entered the world in the person of this wonder-working king. And as he worked wonders, Jesus wasn't just doing like, like magic tricks. He was revealing his character as God. You see, the joy of Christmas comes not just when we remember that he arrived, but when we remember what he did when he arrived, who he was. This wonder-working king. And those who rejoice, those who are marked by joy, are those who remember these wonders. Who look at the story of his life and see in it the kingdom of God that he promises. The kingdom of God that he calls us to embody by his spirit. The kingdom of God that surrounds us even now. This kingdom has two more wonders that I want to call your attention to this morning. We talked about the wonder of his arrival, we talked about the wonder of his life, but the third wonder is the wonder of his love. And I've already mentioned resurrection, but that is only part of the love that Jesus showed us because before resurrection came across, and that's where I want to go next because Christmas always goes side by side with Easter. The Gospel of John is best known for these words. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The wonder of Jesus' arrival and the wonder of his life are both marked by the wonder of his love. Because the very reason that Jesus came is love. Supernatural love. The very reason he took on flesh is love. To communicate his love for us. Why? John continues in the next verse. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Later in John 15, 13, we read this, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The love of Jesus is demonstrated not just in his life, but in his death. In his his sacrifice for all of humanity. The wonder of a love that does more than express nice sentiments, but reaches all the way down to the broken foundations of sin and brings repair to what felt irreparable. The wonder of his love that enabled him to willingly endure the shame of the cross. To lay down his life, not just for friends, but for enemies. A miraculous and supernatural love that's not just the kind of love uh, of what it is, but what it accomplishes. The resurrection of sinners dead in their sin. The salvation of people lost in their sins. Making enemies into friends, orphans into children, sinners into saints. This Christmas, the wonders of his arrival and the wonder of his life all work toward the wonder of his love because the wonder-working king has done the unimaginable. He did not just work wonders of power. He worked the wonder of sacrifice, of, of suffering and death of a cross to turn darkness into light, desperation into hope, despair into joy. In this Advent season, we remember The wonder of his love, because Christmas always points to Easter. Jesus' birth always points to Jesus' cross, where the wonder of his love takes sinners like like you and like me and identifies us not by what we have done, but by what he did. That names us not as, as sinners, but as beloved. The wonder of his love is that on the cross, the Son of God died. That his love is powerful enough to bring us back to life. That by his death and resurrection, he didn't just bring us back to life, but brought us into life in his kingdom. The wonder of his love is the wonder of salvation. The wonder of God creating a people for himself. The wonder of God forgiving the ways we have rebelled against him. The wonder of a God who enabled that forgiveness by taking on our punishment. This is the good news of Jesus. That the wonder of his arrival coursed through his life and culminated in the wonder of his love. And it doesn't just end there. You see, I'm talking about the gospel, and sometimes we, we end there and say, okay, now believe, period. Well, what we have to remember is that even in Christmas, it, this, is, this is just the beginning, right? When, when the gospel is, is just the beginning, The gospel is also the middle and the end. And so when I say that, hey, the wonder of his love was coursing to you, the the thing I want to remind you of is that it doesn't just course to you and stop there. You are not a cul-de-sac. The wonder of his love courses through you. John 13, 34 through through 35 says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love. Love like I have loved you. The love I've shown you in my life and in my death and my resurrection. This is the love that marks you off as my people. The wonder of love that should define us. This supernatural, miraculous, out-of-the-ordinary love that fills and flows from the people of God to each other and to everyone the Lord puts in our path. Christmas is about love because God so loved the world that he sent his son. And God so loved the world that his son previewed the kingdom he was bringing to earth as the wonder-working king. And God so loved the world that he laid down his life to save us, that he might love through us. This Advent we love because he first loved us. And we rejoice because we remember what he did for us, what it cost him to make us into familia. Those who rejoice are those who remember his wonders and this morning I invite you to remember the wonder of his love. But I have one fourth and final wonder to point us to this morning before we end and it brings us all the way back to Isaiah 9 where we read about the wonder of his reign. Look at the text. We started for to us a child is born, a, a son is given and then we read that the government will be on his shoulders. Why does Isaiah use this image here? Well, it's because just a few verses earlier, Isaiah also uses this prophetic uh, a triple image where God shatters, look in your text, a yoke of burden, a bar across the shoulders, and a rod that oppresses. In other words, instead of God's people carrying, God will now carry on his shoulders what was always his to carry, ruling as king. Our first sin was that we, uh, in the garden, that we wanted to be like God problem is we could not bear the weight of trying to be like God and it destroyed us have you ever heard the words of Matthew 11 come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light those are Jesus's words Isaiah 9 is not just a prophecy of power, but of a king who takes the burdens off of the shoulders of his image bearers and bears them himself, who carries the weight we were never designed to carry, the weight of being the wonder-working king who rules over all. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Look at verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The wonder of his reign is more than just the fact of his reign. The wonder of the reign of Jesus, as prophesied in Isaiah, is not just that the government will be on his shoulders, but how he will rule and reign. How far his reign extends and what his reign produces. Notice the language here. There is no end to his kingdom. It goes everywhere It is a land without borders, a kingdom without boundaries, a a, a reality that transcends geography and time and space and culture and ethnicity to restore what sin destroyed and and, and revive what sin killed. But notice what spreads when the kingdom spreads. Peace. Not the hunger of conquest, but the wonder of peace. As one writer explains, this is an empire without imperialism. Rule without exploitation, the perfect one bringing others to perfection by his reign. This is the wonder of the reign of Jesus, that the language of conquest has been flipped on its head for the sake of spreading peace, not war. It is a wonder because it is a reign unlike anything that the world has ever seen. A reign of justice and righteousness, a reign that is marked by perpetual justice, by by perpetual right living, not just individually, but throughout the entire kingdom. The wonder of his reign is that it's forever, and it produces peace, and it is established in justice and righteousness. But I also want to say that it is because it overflows with joy. Earlier in his prophecy, Isaiah explains it like this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the, splund- the plunder. Four times in, in in one verse, the word joy or rejoice is repeated to emphasize an overwhelming and overflowing joy, the kind of joy that accompanies the wonderworking king in his kingdom. This Advent, we hold on to joy because the king promises and enables joy by his wonders in the world. The wonder of his arrival becoming human. The wonder of his life, a king that spreads his kingdom through the supernatural revelation of his character as the king who provides, who rules over creation, who brings the dead back to life. The wonder of his love that saves sinners. The the, the wonder of his reign, of, of a king unlike anything we've ever seen whose kingdom communicates and produces peace everywhere it it spreads forever. Peace, justice, righteousness, and joy. Because those who rejoice are those who remember his wonders. And so this morning, as we begin to anticipate Christmas, as we re-enter the season of Advent together and celebrate the coming of Christ, I want to invite you to remember his wonders. That he is indeed wonderful. I invite you to re enter the wonder of Christmas this season with, with supernatural Christian Christmas hope and joy. To believe that God can actually change your life, that God still wants you, that you are not too far gone, that He still works wonders. To remind us of that, I want to reread the, the uh, reading we did from Luke 2 earlier that we might listen to the wonder of his arrival and end in the story of of Christmas that reminds us of that and anticipate the wonder of his life as we remember the wonder of his love, as we we hold on to the wonder of his reign. I I want us to read of the joy of the incarnation from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A a child born, a son given. The wonder-working king has arrived. Will you pray with me? Emmanuel, this morning we pray in remembrance. Remembering the wonders you have worked to bring us to yourself. To save us. Would you open our eyes to the wonders you are working even now in our lives as you refill us with joy? Joy that's dependent on you and not our circumstances. Joy that's anchored to you, our wonder-working king. We trust you to do what's impossible in our hands because we trust that with you all things are possible. Would you use Advent to remind us of the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of salvation, the wonder of Christ come to earth? Would you remind us? Would you fill us with joy? Would you empower us constantly and consistently as we celebrate your first coming and as we hope for your second? We pray all these things trusting in you, our trustworthy Savior. Amen.